0: This is Ethan Elkind coming up on State of the Bay. We'll get the latest from Steve Berman, the Bay Area sports guy. We'll get his analysis on the 49ers' shocking loss yesterday and on the Warriors' intriguing new roster. We'll also cover San Francisco's new WNBA team and find out what's next for the A's and the Giants. We'll dive into all of that, and then we'll talk about housing. Governor Newsom has signed a whopping 56 bills related to housing and cities are under pressure to build more and fast. Is California finally turning the corner on housing? And lastly, we'll cover a new exhibit about censorship called Unbanned. All of this is coming up next on State of the Bay, so stay with us. But first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Tonight, we're discussing the 56 housing bills Governor Newsom recently signed. Is California finally turning the corner on its housing shortage? We'll also hear about a new exhibit on censorship called Unbanned. But first, what a time it is for Bay Area sports. If you're a 49ers fan, you may still be reeling from their shocking loss yesterday. If you're a baseball fan, things are even more fraught as neither the A's nor the Giants made the playoffs this year. And if you're a Golden State Warriors fan, the future could be promising. New season starts October 24th with an intriguing new roster, and they've just been awarded a new WNBA team. So a lot going on and providing insights and analysis on all of this is Steve Berman, the Bay Area sports guy, now of The Athletic. Welcome back to State of the Bay, Steve Berman.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back on again.
0: So, Steve, let's start with the 49ers. Before yesterday's loss, they had been looking absolutely unbeatable, a dominant 5-0 record. People were talking about them being sure bets for the Super Bowl and maybe for a number of MVP awards. But yesterday's loss broke their 15-game regular season winning streak dating back to last season. So for those of us who aren't following this team that closely, though I am, I'll admit I'm a 49ers fan. Can you talk about what happened yesterday and what this might mean for the rest of the season? Are they not as good as we thought they might have been?
1: I don't really know if we can go that far yet. Uh, Everything that could have happened poorly for them did yesterday. They lost Debo Samuel, I think, on his first offensive touch of the game. He went down to the sideline and uh, had his shoulder injured. They stayed on for a few more plays, but then was out for the rest of the game. They also lost Christian McCaffrey, who's an Offensive Player of the Year, if not MVP candidate, uh, midway through the game with some sort of ribs or oblique situation. The weather wasn't so great, and Brock pretty looked like he couldn't really control his throws. He lost a lot of balls that kind of seemed to slip out of his hand. And not only that, but they actually were in position to win, and they made some really, I would say, Dumb penalties, one for the 49ers defense, but also the officiating was a disaster yesterday for both sides, Mm -hmm. including one huge play on Deshaun Gibson, the safety that should not have been called unnecessary roughness that kept the Browns drive alive and allowed them to take the lead. And then their rookie field goal kicker, the rookie kicker, Jake Moody, they took in the third round. Kind of a controversial decision to draft a kicker that early. He had a straight on 41 yard field goal that he sh- shanked to the right. And the mm-hmm. Niners actually could have won the game in the final seconds. And that one kept them from winning. Give him a 19 17 loss. And it's probably a game where they probably looked, This probably kind of a letdown game after they destroy the Cowboys a week before in a game where emotions seemed kind of high.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder with the Niners letting Robbie Gold, their former kicker, going. He's currently sitting at home doing nothing. I wonder if they regret not bringing him back this year and going with the rookie, Moody, who shanked it, as you noted, uh, when he could have won the game with that. But I'm curious about your whatever intel you have on these injuries. It seemed like that was a big part of the of the game yesterday, the fact they lost arguably the number one running back in the league, Christian McCaffrey, Debo Sandals, as you mentioned. Any updates on their status?
1: Kyle Shanahan today. Uh, Talked about everyone. Uh, Trent Williams also sprained his ankle during the game and wasn't really at full strength near the end of the game. But he and both Debo are apparently day to day. They don't think those injuries are too serious. Usually, when you say day to day, that generally means the team's gonna a player is gonna play in the next game, especially since the next one's on a Monday night, so they get an extra day of rest. Uh, Christian McCaffrey's injury. uh, He's getting an he was getting an MRI today. So once that is looked at they'll have a better idea of what's going on there An oblique injury is not some one that generally affects football players too often anyways it's more of a baseball injury because you can't swing or pitch so i'm not sure if it might keep him out a game or two but i think that would probably be the maximum side of it and then they're also going to get Dre greenlaw back it sounds like he's going to come back to practice and i think their run defense kind of suffered yesterday without him and one of their best middle linebackers
0: So some reason for optimism then. It could have been a lot worse on the injury front. I think the big story for the Niners that I want to ask you about is really quarterback Brock Purdy. For those who don't know, he was drafted last in the the NFL draft. He's called Mr. Irrelevant, but he's really turned the team around up until – yesterday when he really had his first off game through his first interception didn't look very sharp as you noted maybe it was weather related but I'm curious what your take is I mean is is he the real deal or is yesterday maybe a reminder that we shouldn't bank on Purdy being the number one quarterback that he seemed to be for for most of his career here
1: I guess it depends on what you mean by the real deal if you do you mean that he's a good player and a good starting quarterback and in the top half of starting quarterbacks in the NFL, I would totally say yes to that. I think that he's put enough enough tape out there where he's been a good player. I know a lot of people kind of downplay it because the 49ers have built a really good team around him, but he's made a lot of high-level throws. The Cleveland Browns defense, I think pretty clearly, is the best in football. Definitely better than the Cowboys, who they put 42 on the week before, and I think actually a little better and more complete than the 49ers defense. Just the Browns are a disaster offensively after losing Nick Chubb and Deshaun Watson hasn't played for a couple of weeks here, but their defense is pretty outstanding. And the weather was kind of whatever. The one thing that's kind of funny about it though, is after what happened last game and ha- yesterday and see how many balls were errantly thrown, people are going, well, you know, it's hand size. It's nine and a quarter inches. It's kind of small for an NFL quarterback. And, a lot of times when people bring up stuff like hand size during the draft, everyone just kind of like rolls their eyes like oh, these draft nerds. But in this case, you know, maybe it was a situation where because his hands are a little smaller than most quarterbacks, he had a little bit more trouble holding on to the ball. Some people I've heard say, Hey, maybe you should think about wearing gloves when he plays. But in terms of like long range worry or concern, I don't think there is much of any, I think he's played at a higher level than any quarterback has for the 49ers since Kyle Shanahan came through. And he also was running for his life quite a bit yesterday. So I think a little mm-hmm. bit better offensive line play against defenses that aren't as good as the Browns. I think he's going to be fine.
0: And last question on the 49ers, what's your crystal ball for how the season might end up for him?
1: Well, I think that it's pretty safe usually these years, the most years, to say they'll get to the NFC championship game. I think that right now there are three teams, the NFC, maybe two, but maybe three now that have, are kind of a cut above. So along with the 49ers, obviously the Eagles, who won at the Super Bowl last year, and the Lions are actually showing some stuff right now. So I think there's a pretty good shot they get to the NC championship game. From there, who the heck knows? Weird stuff happens. I, mean, I, I thought the 49ers might go to Philly and win, and then Brock Purdy had his elbow explode on him uh, right in the beginning of the game, mm-hmm. and they had no quarterback. So I would say NFC championship, possible Super Bowl, but I would be confident in saying they'll get to the title game.
0: All right, well, we might hold you to that, maybe have you back on and do a season review when it gets to that point. But let's move on to Absolutely. baseball. Uh, so it was a disappointing season for both the A's and the Giants. I want to ask you first about the A's. And interesting news today, Trevor May, one of their players this year, retired and issued a, a scathing diatribe against the A's owner, John Fisher, basically telling him he needs to sell the team. But possible indication of where the players are on this. But what do you make now of the prospect's of the A's and their stated desire to move to Las Vegas. Do you think that's actually going to happen after everything that's been swirling around this uh, announced departure here?
1: I think you have to look at it and say it's more likely than not that they will end up moving to Las Vegas. There's really no talks going on with the city of Oakland. Uh, John Fisher doesn't seem to be a big fan of the mayor of Oakland and probably vice versa at this point. And it seems like MLB is just sort of trying to bulldoze this thing through. Uh, mm-hmm. And if MLB wants it to happen, it'll probably happen. The only thing I would say that a lot of fans of the A's who want them to stay in Oakland are kind of holding on to is the incompetence of the of ownership and, and uh, the executive team with the A's. John Fisher has not been able to make anything happen at all uh, in any capacity. And Dave Cavill, the team president, doesn't engender much confidence either. So I could see them screwing things up but the way they planned this whole thing in Vegas it's definitely been sort of a roughshod thing where they're just like, okay, here's stadium renderings. Then we find out that the stadium renderings for the Las Vegas site are completely made up. They're, they're actually it was just an AI creation of the Coliseum where they probably just said put the Coliseum in Vegas. So that that's not even going to be the renderings. There've been a lot of changes already about what their plans are going to be. They still have to get finance together. So yes, I do think it'll probably happen, but it wouldn't surprise me if they screw it up somehow.
0: Yeah. It seems like chat GPT was involved in some of their plans here to <laughs> move to Vegas. So let's talk about the giants, a bit. I think it's pretty interesting news. The giants had a disappointing season, of course, but they did fire their manager and the athletic is reporting that Alyssa Nacken who's on the giants coaching staff is interviewing for that job, which would make her the first woman ever to interview for a major league managerial position, let alone what would the history making, uh, potential of her actually being hired to be the manager. What are you hearing about Alyssa Nackett's chances to be the first female manager of uh, of a major league ball club?
1: You know, I, I hadn't heard a thing about it until uh, Andrew Bagley broke the story yesterday. And it, it makes sense because they, they're not just interviewing her, but they're also interviewing several other assistant coaches, Mark Hallberg, uh, Kai Correa, who took over as the interim manager for the last series of the season after they fired Gabe Kapler and I, and I think maybe some somebody like Antoine Richardson would also be in line for an interview. Uh, it's a great step in the right direction because you're not going to have a woman get a job like this without getting interviewed and, and at least getting exposed to that process. And there's already a, a head of baseball operations who just left the Marlins today, Kim Ng, who's a woman. So. Uh, I think that there's, there's also a manager, a woman manager in the Yankees minor league system. So I think we're moving in the right direction. I, I don't think this has anything to do with who will actually end up getting the job. I still think that there's a decent chance that the that Bob Melvin ends up uh, given being given permission to interview with the Giants and might end up getting that job. Uh, that I mean, he's still in a contract with the Padres. But I could mm-hmm. see something like that happening. But I think it's great. Alyssa Nakken is really well respected around the clubhouse. Uh, she wears a few different hats as one of the members of the coaching staff. So, and and also uh, I think she either is pregnant or just or just had a. I think she's pregnant right now. So, mm-hmm. uh, pretty busy off season for Alyssa. <laughs>
0: that sounds like it. we'll, we'll definitely follow that story. Want to ask you before we let you go about the Warriors? They traded in the off season for veteran guard Chris Paul of the Phoenix Suns. He's been a villain for many Warriors fans and players for a long time. How do you yeah. think he's going to integrate into the team? And what are your thoughts about how that lineup's looking right now?
1: Well, I, I think it's so far so good. You know, I mean, yes, Warriors fans. Uh, I think there aren't that many players that they like less than Chris Paul over the years. Uh, and that kind of comes from just competing against him in the playoffs so often. But also, he's he's got a little bit of a prickly personality on the court. He's been known to... uh have some dirty tricks up his sleeve uh, in terms of getting fouls and, and doing things. Uh, but I think as a wily veteran on a team with a bunch of veterans, he probably should fit in pretty well. Uh, he's fit in well and made every team better that he's been on in the NBA. And Steph seems like he's doing a lot of extra work after practices with him. In terms of the lineup, a uh, big question was whether or not Chris Paul is going to start. Most people figure he should probably lead the second unit, but with Draymond Green out for a, a certain period of time with a ankle sprain, then maybe that decision gets taken off of Steve Kerr's plate until Draymond gets back and Chris Paul starts in the starting lineup alongside Steph Curry, which that's a pretty small backcourt, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter that much who starts is really more who finishes. And I would imagine that Chris Paul will be in the finishing unit as long as uh, things work out well between him and Steph. And those two are such b- basketball savants, so smart that I feel like they'll figure out a way to make it work.
0: And last question for you, the Warriors were just awarded a WNBA team that they're going to be starting now. What do you make of this? Is this going to be a success? Why do you think the the Warriors decided to do this? So just a minute left here, but curious for your thoughts on on this. Yeah, sure.
1: Uh, No-brainer. Joe Lacob, the uh, man who's, who's one of the owners of the Warriors, he's very much out front saying that he wanted to bring women's basketball back to the Bay Area. He was actually the owner of the ABL team. That I think disbanded in 1998. That had Jennifer AZ and others on there. So yeah, I think I think it's a no-brainer. There's a lot. There's a big appetite for women's basketball, and a lot of talk of has been about this. A lot of people wanted them to actually play at the Oakland Arena, which used to be called Oracle, but that's not going to happen. They're probably going to have their practice facility in Oakland where the Warriors used to have theirs, and they're going to play their games at Chase Center. But uh, I'm sure I'll check out a game or two myself uh, in person, and I think it's going to go really well, actually.
0: Well, Steve Berman, Bay Area sports guy, now of The Athletic. Always a pleasure to have you on and get the latest on the sports scene here in the Bay Area. Thanks so much for joining us on State of the Bay.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: And next up, Governor Newsom signed 56 new housing bills in the session that ended on Saturday. So are we at a turning point now for new housing in the Bay Area? That's right after this break, so stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. By the close of Saturday, Governor Gavin Newsom had signed 56 new housing-related bills, signaling a commitment to make progress on the persistent lack of housing supply and affordability in the state. The bills touch on seemingly every aspect of the housing crisis, from rents to zoning and building codes, financing, accessory dwelling units, and more. So is the future of California housing any brighter now? Here to discuss, we're very pleased to be joined by two guests. First up, Sarah Karlinski, Research Director for Land Use Policy at Spur and a frequent State of the Bay contributor. So welcome back, Sarah.
2: Thanks so much. Great to be here.
0: And we're also joined by Ben Metcalf, Managing Director for the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Ben. Hey, Ethan. So we want you, our listeners, to be a part of this next conversation as well as we talk about the future of housing in California. How do you feel about the state's push to add more housing? What do you think could help make housing more affordable in California? You can give us a call to join this conversation. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-TALK. And you can also email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. So let me start with you, Sarah Karlinski of Spur. Let's just get the bottom line here. Do you think that the recent legislation that the state has passed and the governor has now signed is getting the state on track to actually ease our housing crisis?
2: Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I think when we think about the housing production that we need um, to address our housing shortage, it's important to think about sort of three different Buckets of um, actions or areas, if you will, that impact housing production. Um, The first being uh, the regulatory framework um, that impacts housing. So, that's how much housing do we zone for? Is it possible to actually get entitlements for housing? Um, That's kind of one bucket. A second bucket has to do with financing or money for housing. Um, And the third uh, really has to do with construction costs. And so, to address uh, California's housing crisis, all three need to be moving in the right direction. Um, and I would say, uh, by way of your question, that the uh, the bills that we have seen come out of the legislature that the governor recently signed are definitely moving that first bucket in the right direction. So that's um, making it easier um, to build housing in a variety of different ways from a regulatory perspective.
0: And Sarah, maybe can you explain some of the levels of decision making here? I mean, we've got the state involved in this, but a lot of the zoning that you just referenced is done at the local level. You have the regional level that's allocating some of the transportation dollars and housing element, uh housing assignments for the housing elements. Can you just describe a little bit about how these different layers of jurisdiction overlap and contribute to decisions on housing?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. It's a very, very, very complicated system and it's a very decentralized system. Um, and as you can imagine, since California is the most populous state, it's just, it's, it's very, very, very complex. But I think the best way to think about it is that the state kind of sets the planning framework. Um, for every place, every city, every county, um, in, in California. And so by that, I mean, they kind of come up with the, uh, regulatory framework, if you will. Um, and what you just, uh, described a little bit earlier as is, is maybe one very good ex- example, which is the, um, what's called the regional housing needs allocation process. So in this process, the state basically says, um, to the region, okay, region, we're going to give you a target for how much housing we need to plan for. And then the region then, um, says to the cities, okay, cities, this is much housing you need to plan for. But the state comes up with, um, basically a uh, set of requirements for how that housing is then distributed. Um, and then the cities then have to take that allocation and actually plan for it. And their plan for the housing is called the housing element. Um, and then they must adopt this plan, which says, um, let's take the uh, case of San Francisco San Francisco has to plan for an additional 82,000 housing units over the next eight years. They need to say where that housing is going to go. They need to say um, where the sites are for that housing. Um, They need to look at constraints um, to the production of that housing and uh, talk about how they're going to address those constraints. Um, And then they actually have to zone for that housing. Um, and really, uh, it's the, it's the locality's job to actually do that zoning. Um, and it's the locality's job to, um, actually permit that housing to happen. But, um, as they're, as they're coming up with their plans and doing their planning, they need to do so within the context that the state sets. So the state might say, and the state has said, we want you to think about putting more housing, um, not just in communities where um, low income households live, but also where high income households live. That's called mm-hmm. affirmative furthering fair housing. And that's a state requirement that is then placed on the, on the cities. So yeah. there's really a role for each layer of government.
0: Well, thank you for explaining this. It's a, obviously, it's very convoluted. A lot of cooks in the kitchen here when it comes to housing and the state obviously asserting itself. As I mentioned, 56 new bills and Ben Metcalf at the Turner Center. I'm not going to quiz you on all 56 bills because I know there's a lot of details there. But I'm I'm curious if you could just maybe talk about some of the bills that you think really caught your attention. You think are noteworthy, might have a chance to to really make an impact, and then maybe I can follow up on some specifics, but I wanted to give you just a chance to start with your sort of overall impression of, uh, of what might be impactful here.
3: Yeah, so 56 is a big number, and I was just reflecting on this, I think probably 10 years ago, I'm guessing, but it probably would have been about five bills signed into law. <laughs> you know 5 years ago you know maybe we were averaging something closer to 20 i, I think we're in this sort of exponential growth curve of housing bills <laughs> <laughs> who knows where it'll end um I, but I, you know i'm kidding a little bit part of what we're seeing is you know don't i guess don't be too too impressed by the number mm-hmm. a, a lot of what we're seeing with these 56 are pretty technical in the weed stuff i mean S- sarah gave a great overview Uh, the legislature is continuing to tweak and tinker with a lot of existing state housing laws, getting them working better, um, closing loopholes, uh, responding to concerns that are coming up. Um, And so I I don't think it is actually a good idea to sort of measure the impact of this just by tallying the total number of bills. Um, And I think what you see here is uh, what happens when you have several years of legislative leadership and the governor continuing to generally signal to folks in the legislature that you know housing is and, and should be a priority uh, but without necessarily like coming in to to really push for any one big particular change so so I, I, you know if i if i were to generalize i'd say you know what, a couple couple of the themes that come as i look at these 56 one is a couple of places where we have seen uh, meaningful progress over the last couple of years where the state has figured out a way to really sort of help Uh, gin up new housing one of them certainly is in this accessory dwelling unit space so these are these granny flats or in-laws where starting in 2016 we started seeing the legislature tinkering on this and increasingly rolling out a a framework that allows homeowners to essentially unilaterally get get their get their adus uh, approved without um you know needing to um uh sort of seek some sort of approval from their their city i mean obviously you got to go get the building code you know building department to come and make sure it meets your health and safety but other than that you know today in california for the most part you know you can 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 convert that garage um to uh an apartment and and um and your you know city council can't say no and so in this round we saw continuing to make that a more effective and powerful tool for example um, it will now be the law of the land that you can take these ADUs and actually sell them um, mm-hmm. as as individual units, as, basically as condominium units. Uh, we saw the legislature also get rid of some of the requirements that were going to sunset on requiring a, somebody to be an owner-occupant. You could now, in theory, have the main house um, rented and and also have a junior, you know, ancestor, ancestor dwelling unit rent. So that ADU thread is a big one. Mm-hmm. The other one that really pops out to me as I look at this is um in – sort of the subsidized, affordable, multifamily housing space. So the state puts out a lot of money to help build low-income housing every year. Um, that's been a place where we've seen more of those kinds of buildings um, getting built. And in this legislation, what I see is the state increasingly telling local governments that you, you really can't let your zoning uh, get in the way of those apartment buildings getting built. If they're being subsidized by the state, you you really can't see, say no um, and you can't limit the size of them very much anymore either, or even the location. I mean, you, you know, we see bills here that are allowing them to get uh, built on church lands. We had a big bill last year, allowing, afford- making it very easy to build affordable housing on commercial lands. Um, so those are the two big, big threads. I think everything else that's going on is, is either a technical fix or more of a long-term play that we're probably not going to see um, uh, uh, the value of for a few years.
0: All right, so it's not necessarily the quantity here, fifty-six, but it's the quality, and I think you pointed out some potential bright spots there. Uh, Sarah Karlinski, just wanted to get your take on the legislative session as well. Anything pop out to you? Any any themes that you want to highlight?
2: Well, I certainly, uh, agree with, with Ben that the, that the two kind of biggest, uh, bills from this legislative cycle are, there's one, uh, by Senator, uh, Scott Wiener to, um, extend a bill that, uh, that he had authored previously called, um, SB 35, which, uh, basically, as, as Ben mentioned, allows for affordable housing to get built, um, will be, uh, planners called ministerially, which basically means it's, uh, a, a planner kind of can look at the plans and say yes or no, as opposed to having to go to the planning commission, which is a really, really big deal. Um, so that bill just got, um, not just extended, but also, um, where it applies, uh, has, has changed. So some of the, um, uh lands that are coast uh close to the coast are are now also included um so that was a really big deal to have that bill passed um and then the the second is as ben mentioned is the ability to um build housing on on church lands um is is a pretty big deal but some of the the technical fixes um they make a big difference um and uh, ethan as you know uh one of the Fronts of the the housing wars, if you will, in, in California has to do with uh, the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of how we uh, analyze uh, environmental impacts and how that um, particular law is is utilized to um, potentially support environmental inco- uh, outcomes, but more often than not, um, it's used to uh, make it harder to build housing within cities. Um and so there was a, a bill that actually that Spur worked on pretty hard um to make some um uh changes to how that uh law sequa applies um in, in cities um to, to make sure that cities aren't allowed to just analyze, 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 analyze a project um, to death, that that there mm-hmm. has to be sort of an end point um, to that analysis. So that seems like a really small thing, but it's actually a pretty big thing. Um, and we were really excited about that one.
0: Well, certainly, Sequel gets a lot of attention. There was the controversy at UC Berkeley over moving forward on some student housing. So uh, a lot to talk about there. I just want to let listeners know first that this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing the future of Bay Area housing with Sarah Karlinsky of Spur and Ben Metcalf of UC Berkeley's Turner Center for Housing Innovation. And we want to hear from you as well. Are you a homeowner worried about development near you? Are you someone who's unable to find affordable housing? If so, do you think that some of these measures might help you? You can call to join the conversation, 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also reach us on social media or email us at stateofthebay at KALW Dot org And we do have an email from Steve who writes, Oakland has relatively cheap rents, but its sky-high crime rates make it a poor choice to lease an apartment in. And I think this gets to just the complexity of the real estate market. And I did notice, uh, and Ben, maybe I'll start with you on this, that Oakland does have uh, better rent. It seems like prices might be coming down or at least stabilizing in Oakland compared to other parts of the Bay and some people are saying that's because Oakland's done a good job about building more apartments. But how do you sort of view this relationship between supply and price and maybe you know, teeing off this Oakland example as, uh, as a data point here?
3: I, I think it's super interesting. I mean, I think there is reason to speculate, at least, that um, the sort of significant um, infusion of new brand new apartment buildings that have been um, opening in um, – Oakland's Uptown, for example, that, that that neighborhood have have played a role in, if not you know dramatically lowering rents, at least you know keep, keeping them from from going up up uh, too too high. I think it is an interesting little case study of, of at least a neighborhood or community where that we, we might actually be seeing the thing that economists uh, will tell will tell us we, we should be seeing more of, which is if you make a lot of apartments available, um, then people have more options and choices, and so it does create a little bit of downward pressure on the rents. I think the thing to be careful here is it's a pretty small downward pressure. And I think what's happening right now is we're not seeing a big flood of new buildings now in the pipeline. So Oakland right now, like San Francisco, it it doesn't have a lot of developer appetite. Folks have put the brakes on projects or they're holding back on getting started construction. Um, I think largely because of all the uncertainty and uh, cost of in, interest rates and all all that kind of stuff, and so I think what is going to happen is that even if we're seeing a temporary uh, softening in rents, um, it's not going to be pretty 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 lengthy, and I think we're going to see rent rents start to tick back up. Other thing I I gotta say is all of our data on rents, what we see in the marketplace, the way that we track this stuff, it's almost all coming from the larger professionally pro- professionally managed uh, apartment buildings. We just don't have good real time data on what's happening with the small mom and pops, you know, what people are paying in, um, when they rent out a a single family home or they're, you know, there was somebody who's, who's, um, doing this as a side job. And so my, my expectation is that we're not seeing as much softening of the rents for the many, many, many renters in Oakland who live in those kinds of properties. Um, and so, uh, that, that may yet uh, be a, be a challenge for, for those folks
0: all right well let's go to the phone lines we have holly calling in from san francisco holly welcome to state of the bay
4: hi um i have uh an apartment in my home and it's a nice apartment it's a good location and i would be happy to rent it out except that in san francisco uh once you've got
5: somebody in if you can't get them out and i'm just afraid i might
4: get a bad tenant and wind up with having them for years and being in court and so forth so is there any way to reassure landlords or people like me that have small apartments in law units that, mm-hmm. that you know, to let them, <laughs> to get them on the market?
0: Yeah, Holly, great question. This, uh, you know, sort of reluctance to put a unit available because you're worried about tenant protections. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, Sarah or Ben, if you've delved into the san francisco law specifically but sarah let me uh turn that one over to you to see if you have uh any thoughts on the the relationship of these tenant protections with supply
2: yeah i mean i you know it's a it's an interesting point and one i've i've heard more than than once kind of this reluctance to put a housing unit on the market for for fear of getting a problematic tenant um I guess I, I would say that, you know, rent control is, um, it's always a, a tricky subject, um, uh, amongst housers because on, on one hand, you, um, absolutely want to see some, um, protections against price gouging, um, in, in the marketplace, especially when you have, um a housing shortage. Um it's it's can be very important to have um, those kinds of protections for renters. At the same time, you don't want them to be the protections to be so onerous that it uh it's a disincentive to actually put the unit on the market. And so I don't have a, an easy answer for the for the caller, but I know it's something that um policymakers and in, in the housing space are always trying to to balance.
0: And Ben, let me turn to you with the point that Holly made, you know, whether or not you want to respond on the specifics of San Francisco, tenant protections. I'm also curious just to know what Sacramento has been doing on this, if anything.
3: Um, I mean, I, this is really a local, the, um, uh, this is really mostly a local issue. Uh, th- at the state level, there's no limits sort of in terms of uh, you, you can do sh- you have more fr- freedom to do shorter term, shorter term leases. And, and, um, uh what the state does limit is your ability to do um evictions without cause so you, you know as long, you know if you're outside san francisco in a place that doesn't have a local policy like this typically if you have cause it's, it's easier to effectuate that eviction i think san francisco does i don't know the specifics but i think they're also struggling with a real backlog of these kinds of cases uh so to the call to holly's point i, I do think it's, it can take a very long time to get to get resolution if you do have somebody who's who's you know stops paying or, or they're violating the lease and that's that's a real problem and something that I think needs to get fixed so people can work seriously within the within the system. I mean mm-hmm. the, the state has a has a policy uh that that does limit uh, landlord's ability to, to push rents up typically it's by about 10% a year is about the cap that the state that the state permits and generally that is what controls uh for most for most jurisdictions. Um again, we have we have examples like San Francisco where where there's a slightly different um frame framework and, and rents may may be limited even a little bit further. Uh gen- generally speaking, you can't you know push your rents up unless beyond that, unless the unit goes vacant. And so that 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 the challenge there is it does create an incentive potentially for landlords to want to move tenants out so that they can push those rents up. Um, and so hence then we have these sort of just cause protections, which which limit the ability to, to push somebody out unless you have some some basis for effectuating that eviction. But but I agree, you know, this is a tough one, and and I do think we, we if we care about housing supply and and using all the housing we have effectively, we do need to make sure that owners and landlords at least feel like the system is listening to them and is responsive, and and when they have a legitimate problem and a, and a tenant who's not following the the contract that's been signed, and um, there is a pathway to to get that situation resolved and to get the tenant the support they need in all likely.
0: Well, thank you, Holly, for dialing in with that question. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing housing with Sarah Karlinsky of Spur and Ben Metcalf of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. If you have questions, you can always dial in to ask uh, our panelists here, 866-798-TALK. It's 866-798-8255. Sarah, I wanted to follow up with you on a point you made about housing elements and the builder's remedy. I know this is an issue for San Francisco being behind on its affordable housing provision. Can you talk a bit about the builder's remedy and how this might come into play for San Francisco housing going forward and and beyond San Francisco as well?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, it, the builder's remedy is really interesting because it's actually been on the books for, for many, uh, many years, but it, um, until recently, it's never been utilized. And, um, I think part of why it's coming to the fore now, at least is that, um, there's a, uh, UC Davis professor of law who's just, uh, kind of wrote a paper about it and started, um, publicizing its existence. Um, and so I think more and more, Um, both builders and cities have become aware of it. But uh, basically what the builder's remedy says um, is that um, if a city does not have a compliant housing element, meaning a housing element that has been signed off by the state as as being okay, um, that the city um, is not allowed to disprove um, an affordable housing project. And so basically, any project that has either 20% of its units as low income or 100% as moderate income Can, uh, must be allowed to, to move forward. Um, and so, um, some developers are, are coming into, um, cities that don't have, uh, compliant housing elements and saying, hey, um, you have to approve my project, um, regardless of whether it conforms with zoning, you know, regardless of whether you think it's attractive or not, um, you need to, to move it, um, forward. And so I believe there's some, in Southern California, that actually have been uh, moving forward. Um, one of the things that I've heard is sometimes developers will put forward a builder's remedy project to kind of get the city to come to the table and negotiate seriously over a zoning compliant project. Um, and there's been some conversation about uh, about this in um, San Francisco as well. Although I believe San Francisco's housing element is has been is currently in um, compliance, um, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Ben, and, and let me turn to you about another issue that's really been at the crux of a lot of the fights in Sacramento over housing, which is organized labor and the construction trades. Where are they at now? In many cases, they've been fighting against efforts to try to deregulate housing because they lose leverage. Uh, but it seems like we've seen that change a little bit in in the past session, or maybe the past two sessions. Can you talk about where we're at, where labor unions are at on this issue of housing at the state level?
3: Yeah, this has been a bit of a head scratcher for many outside observers who have have said, hey, this seems counterintuitive. Why would the uh, building trades, the big organized uh, union that that represents all the various construction workers be, be, you know, against um, bills that are intended to make it easier to build housing? The answer has been that they're really focused on making sure that any housing that gets built uh, is being built uh by their members and you know pay, paying solid wage rates and that that dynamic has really been a showstopper for a lot of legislation uh because uh the the the, the, the folks who are building housing are, are basically saying hey we, we can't you know we can't we can't find either we can't find union members or um to work on these jobs or, or or the project won't pencil if we we sort of pay the wages that are being requested and so a lot of legislation has sort of died along the way uh the big the big change really happened last year when there was a bit of a a little bit of a civil war, I guess you could say, within the building trades. Um, and um, the Carpenters Union, in particular, uh, peeled off and decided that it would sort of step in behind uh, some of these pro-housing pro uh, bills, even against the opposition of the sort of umbrella trade groups, building trades, and support um, start supporting at least certain, certain bills. now. That the deal that was sort of cut was that there would still be a requirement to pay prevailing wage rates, essentially, and offer certain kinds of benefits on those deals, uh, but that it wouldn't require um, sort of a, the full uh, union. Uh, wouldn't require union workers necessarily to be employed; it could be anybody as long as they were getting kind of union-level benefits, and that that was a distinction that was really important for for many builders. And so that's been a a pathway that has. Um, opened up and we're seeing um, you know we saw that with the commercial rezoning bill last year we saw that again with this bill that extended the uh, ministerial approvals for affordable housing into coastal commission territories so it seems like a new pathway that's opening up i think what's also really interesting is that having the carpenters in is also creating an opening for other groups like SCIU or uh, teachers nurses other other unions are now realizing that hey maybe we should be involved in these bills and help support them because you know obviously affordable housing is, is good for their members even if they're not the ones building it. Mm -hmm. So we only have a minute left.
0: I just want to ask each of you real quick, what would you like to see as sort of a priority response to address housing uh, from the state going forward? And Sarah, I'll give you the first crack at it. Just a few seconds here.
2: Oh, man. Well, one of the things (laughs) I didn't mention before that I do want to mention is um, there's another bill that passed, which is ACA one. And this is hugely important. And so if I if I have my druthers, um, basically what this bill does is it puts before voters the ability instead of passing affordable housing bonds at a higher Uh, Rate having to um, basically have two thirds of voters pass them, it would be 55%. And if that actually moves forward and voters actually pass that, it's going to be a total game changer for um, affordable housing in the state. Mm -hmm. And so um, if I could wave my magic wand, I'd have that one pass.
0: All right, we'll look for that. And Ben, you get the last crack here, just a few seconds.
3: I, I love Sarah's. I'll plus one on that one. But I think this other issue of just cost, what can the state be doing to, to think about the things that are imposing heavy costs on projects going forward that aren't related to their being up yep, the housing they're doing? So we saw a study bill looking at amending the residential building code. We've seen some work on uh, the, the sort of taxes and fees that are levied against housing. I think there's work to be done there um, once we sort of get some of the zoning work figured out. Uh, right, I think well, that, that needs to be a priority.
0: Well, we obviously have a lot more to talk about, but Sarah Karlinski of Spur, Ben Metcalf of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, thank you so much for joining us on State of the Bay and explaining these issues on this really important topic. Thank
2: you, thank you so much about. for having us.
0: Pleasure. All right, coming up after the break, we'll dive into a new exhibit about censorship called Unbanned. So stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Banned Books Week during the first week of October is a week for celebrating and reading books that have been censored or subject to censorship. The moment was particularly significant this year because of a dramatic increase in efforts to remove books from libraries and school shelves. A new local exhibit called Unbanned puts a spotlight on this issue. It opened Saturday at the Arion Press Gallery in the San Francisco Presidio. And last week, my co-host Grace Wan sat down with the exhibit's curator, Tamsin Smith. Listen in.
5: Banned Book Weeks during the first week of October is a week for celebrating and reading books that have been censored or subject to censorship. The moment was particularly significant this year because of a dramatic increase in efforts to remove books from libraries and school shelves. A new local exhibit called Unbanned puts a spotlight on the issue. It's up now at the Arion Press Gallery in the San Francisco Presidio. To tell us more about the exhibit is its curator, Tamson Smith. Welcome to State of the Bay, Tamson. Hi, it's great to be here. Yeah, before we talk about the exhibit, tell us a little bit about Arion Press.
4: Well, it's a pretty special place. It's the last integrated type foundry, bookbinding, and letterpress printing facility left in the United States. Pretty unique gem. And we make limited edition artist books printed by uh, letterpress and bound by hand. And uh, we have a long history of working with the greatest artists of the day in bringing literature together with artwork. And that tradition continues to today.
5: Well, this is a really unique kind of gallery with its bookmaking background. You have a particular focus on putting on shows where they feature local artists and topics. Is that right?
4: That's right. Yes. You know, for years, Arian has made these beautiful books and there's always been uh, an artist that's part of interpreting that work. But it's really only in the last couple of years that we've activated the gallery itself as a, a hub for people that care about literature and art to come together. And the focus of the gallery shows has been to feature the incredible artists that we have here in the Bay Area and the shows always have some connection either to a book that we're publishing that year or to the important conversation that visual art and literature have had uh, and continue to have over the years.
5: Well, we were talking about the exhibit Unbanned, and it's opened recently. People might think book bans are not a Bay Area thing, but we've certainly seen efforts to ban books in, for example, a school district in Contra Costa County. Um, tell us why this was a particular focus for Arianne Press.
4: Well, I think we're always focused on promoting literature as a vital resource. Uh, One of the things that connects us as human beings and keeps that connection vital. And we, like a lot of people, have been frustrated with the recent rise in censorship. You know, San Francisco has a long history of dealing with censorship from how long down. And the first book that we published this year, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, is on the banned books list and you know it is particularly frustrating to us that these great books that we think need to be reimagined and that never get old are are, uh, facing restrictions when it's often the voices of those who've been least heard and most need to be heard that are on these lists
5: i love that book i can imagine it's probably beautiful i need to go check that out um So I wanted to talk about a a few of the artists who are in this show. Tell us a little bit about Judith Selby-Lang and Richard Lang.
4: Well, Judith Selby-Lang has created five pieces for the show. She is a passionate reader and went to local bookstores and purchased books from the band list. And in many cases, she would see that a passage had been highlighted. And she would also find, you know, in one case, a photograph of a group of young women uh, gathering, maybe for a book club, maybe for margaritas. She wasn't sure. And she found that in the book Milk and Honey, which addresses a lot of important issues of female empowerment and histories of violence. She kind of put herself into conversation with the young women in this postcard and lifted lines from the passages with cellophane tape. You know, if you think about what tape is, it's something that binds objects together. And in a sense, she took the poetry of that book, bound it to these women that she'll never meet and is now sharing that with all the people that will walk into the gallery and see the show. She also has another incredible piece inspired by The Handmaid's Tale, which is these long, fluttering red bits of cellophane tape with words lifted from the book that sort of mimics that very classic Cover of the book. And so, you know, there's a great dearness to her work. Richard Lang, who's her husband, they collaborate often in their artwork, but they've made separate pieces this time. Richard's piece is called Leaving the Cave of a Tiger, and it is a replication of a work that he created many years ago for a faculty exhibit after having been let go from a job. He was the highest rated teacher. But when Budget Cuts came along, he lost that job. And in frustration for capitalism taking over his ability to connect with students, he created this piece that was a big slab of clay with jagged bits of broken glass sticking out of it. And it was deemed too unsettling and banned from the show. And it's always really stuck with him that he had a work of art banned. And so when... We talked about this show. He said, I'd like to recreate that almost as an exorcism of my own experience in the story that I had wanted to tell being banned. Good for him.
5: Um, You know, Keisha Lucas is another artist featured in the exhibit. Tell us about that work.
4: So Keisha, in spending time thinking about what she wanted to do, she went to her own bookshelf and rediscovered works that had come either from her father's collection or had been gifts to her and to her sister. And she realized that he'd inscribed a lot of these and embedded within those inscriptions on the title page were messages about the importance of literature and critical thought. And her father was an undiagnosed dyslexic who used to get sent out of the room when it was time to read in school. But for him, books, though they were hard for him to read, were this incredible resource and really a legacy that he wanted to to give to his children. So, Keisha has photographed the title pages of six of these books, uh, including Notes on a Native Son, which was a gift from her father on her 16th birthday. And um, those are a very powerful addition to the show.
5: That sounds like such a lovely remembrance of her father. Um, How about Maya Kobabe?
4: So Maya is not only an author, but an illustrator who happens to have the most banned book in the country right now, Gender Career, which is this graphic autobiography of coming out as non-binary and one of those very important voices that is now topping the censorship list, unfortunately. And Maya's created a poster That is a self-portrait with the um, mottos of fighting censorship on the back of her jacket.
5: It's such a great poster. Well, tell us a little bit about how listeners could see the exhibit.
4: Well, Arianne Press is open five days a week, Monday to Friday, business hours nine to five. And if you find yourself in the Presidio, just ring the doorbell. We'd love to have you come in and take a look around. There are 10 artists in all, and we hope that people will be inspired to join the conversation around the importance of literary freedom, supporting diverse voices, and enjoy the incredible work that these artists have have created for them. Oh, and we're really excited that the Porchlight live storytelling series is going to do a show bouncing off the topic of banned books on the 18th of October. In the gallery, uh, Michelle Yee Martin, one of our artists, is one of the storytellers, and it should be a really powerful gathering. So, come all. <laughs> well, on this show, we're so
5: lucky to be able to talk to working artists who live in the Bay Area like yourself. And you're a published poet, a novelist, an essayist, a painter. I mean, I think you are a one-stop shop, Tamsin. Um <laughs> And I'm just curious about what you find fulfilling about making art here in the Bay Area and whether or not this region is sort of integral to your work.
4: I think it absolutely is. And even though it's hard for us all to live in the same neighborhoods, you know, it's it's uh, spread out the Bay Area, but uh, community is a critical part of the legacy of Bay Area artists. And it's been an important part of my process. I learned so much just from whether it's as a curator or collaborating on a painting or organizing a poetry reading and bringing others into it. There's a great history of graffiti artists, you know, Mission School and otherwise. And and one of the mottos there is when you go through the fence, you pull the next person through. And I think that's always been intrinsic to the way Bay Area artists have thought about their own shows. A lot of artists that uh, if they have a solo show, they'll have a, a wall that features their friends. This is a way of shining the light on all the other artists that you may not yet have heard about, but that have important things to say.
5: Well, this show sounds incredible, and I'm so excited to see it myself. Tamson Smith is the curator of the new exhibit, Unbanned, showing at the Arion Press Gallery in the San Francisco Presidio. Thanks so much for joining us, Tamson.
0: Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We hope you'll join us next Monday at 6, when we'll talk about the results of a universal basic income trial in the Bay Area. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit our page on KALW.org. You can also visit us at our new downtown studio, open to the public at 220 Montgomery Street. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, you can email us anytime at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Wendy Holcomb and Chris Nooney, who was engineered by David Kwan, and D-Minor was our board operator. Stay tuned next for a rebroadcast of your call that aired this morning. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night and thanks for listening.